0: And this is Mike Fader. Um, stay tuned in a few minutes for the turning point with myself. Um, a listener sent me a listener sent me um, uh, an email the other day, and I uh, always count on this guy's emails. I love his emails, as I get many terrific emails from listeners. Um, and he is a Buddhist. Sent me this uh, saying, which is supposed to be from the, who knows? It's from the Buddha. Almost anything could be from the Buddha if it sounds Buddhist. But I, you know, and it's the following: Suffering is not holding you; you are holding suffering. Suffering is not holding you; you are holding suffering. Well, to the extent I. I have trouble grasping that. I mean, first of all, it seems clear enough, right? I mean, if you've ever studied any little bit about, even a little bit about Buddhism, it's the idea that you are um, attached—you're attached in a way which uh, something has to do with uh, with mortality. To it, you're attached to to your life in a way, and to other people, and to life itself, in too desperate a way. In other words, there's a certain amount of grasping involved. You're afraid that if you don't have your youth, if you're going to get older, uh, you're afraid of pain, you're afraid of illness, you're afraid of death, which is uh, lurking behind all of those things. I mean, uh, you know, there's the ancient story of the Buddha who is uh, a young, beautiful, healthy king brought up in, uh, inside of a, a great palace where he was never allowed to see anybody who was old, in pain, suffering in any way, um, and... Um, And uh, there's no aging, nothing. And he uh, left the palace, (coughs) left the palace, and he um, encountered just outside the palace walls in the city old age on one trip, uh, suffering on another, and uh, pain, all of these things. Let me have some water here. I have to apologize. My throat throat) keeps getting worse all the time. And um, I know it sounds awful, but I do what I can. So uh, that's the idea. Uh, And Buddha developed this. I mean, that I should interpret Buddhism. You know, I'm I'm not a Buddhist scholar. But the idea is that uh, a great deal of the suffering that we all have in this world, a great deal of the suffering we all have in this world is brought about not just by the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, not about uh, the things that come out of the blue, not about uh, the realities of the difficulties, to put it mildly, of life and of death and of old age and pain and other kinds of suffering. Um, a lot of uh, our own suffering and the uh, amplified suffering that we suffer, <laughs> that we that we endure from old age and pain and death and separation and all those things is uh, is our too strong uh, fixed attachment to uh, to a sort of uh, magical life where we're going to uh, we 're going to live forever we 're never going to suffer we 're never going to have pain we 're never going to die it 's kind of a, a a great fantasy that we have in the midst of reality, but the real reality is that these things do happen they can happen they will happen, and you have to um, You have to remain calm with all of them. And then, of course, if uh, you really are studying Buddhism and you could really um, attain that kind of level of uh, something like enlightenment in life, you see that life and death are one thing, and there's no reason to get so upset about it all. Well, I've never even gotten on the first rung of that ladder. Um, And really, I mean, it's one way to look at things. I mean, what about, uh, I think about, things ramble through my mind, I think about the story of... uh, um of Job in the Bible where Job was <clears throat> a very rich man he had everything he had health he had uh, a wonderful family he had all kinds of uh, g- goods in the world and his life was plentiful and, and enriching and everything and he was faithful he was a, a faithful um, believer in the Lord and observer of the Lord's rules and uh, for one reason or another, which is in the Bible, the Lord decides um, to show the devil, I think it is to show Satan, that, uh, what real faith is. And little by little, he destroys uh, Job's life. And he takes away absolutely everything. I don't remember the story exactly, but everything he had, he lost. And he was afflicted with the worst kind of pain and suffering. And everything was lost, and he was miserable beyond uh, anybody's imagining in the world, and he um, he maintained his faith. Now, I think, if I remember right, at the end of all this suffering, and he maintaining and maintaining his faith, he was rewarded. He was rewarded, and things came back to him. That was his reward. But you don't always get rewarded. You could have all the faith you want sometimes, and you don't get rewarded. You just lose things. Uh, there are other stories and other cultures and other religions. Um, you can't escape. What about fate? the whole idea of fate and destiny. And, uh, uh, you know, you can escape. Uh, You can't escape. You can't escape your destiny and your fate. Think of Jonah and the whale. Think of Jonah. Uh, The Lord wants him uh, to do a special mission for him, but he doesn't want any part of it. He doesn't want anything to do with it, and he tries to escape, and uh, you know the rest of the story. Or maybe you don't. But the point being that you can't really... Uh, escape your destiny. So all of these things, I mean, which is which? I mean, uh, things come out of the blue, they afflict you, you get older, you have troubles in the world. Is it destiny? Are you too attached to life and uh, the the idea that you would, you would never suffer or you would never lose anyone or everything you have will always be the same? Probably, yes. I guess the bottom line of this lesson here is that uh, whatever bad things happen to you, whatever... Uh, not even bad, but the way it goes. Whatever suffering you endure, um, if you're too attached to youth and to the lack of suffering and lack of pain and the lack of reality the way life is, then it's just going to amplify it all and make it worse. I guess that's the lesson. But it's uh, a lesson, I suppose, that I've never really learned, and I'm still trying to learn all the time. Um, Maybe we're all trying to learn it. How do you you stay... um, uh, awake and alive and have faith or stay attached to, uh, to the realities of, of love and hopefulness? Uh, how do you have all this in the midst of uh, the crap and the awfulness that life could uh, sling your way? It's a mystery, but uh, a lot of people manage to do it, and they work hard at it. Anyhow, let's talk a little bit more about this as we go on. Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader.
1: to be free I wish I could break all the chains holding me I wish I could say all the things that I should say say them loud say I'm clear for the whole round world to hear I wish I Share all the love that's in my heart. Remove all the bars that keep us apart. I wish you could know what it means to be me. Then you'd see and agree that every man should be free.
0: So, last Tuesday morning, not this Tuesday, but the one before, um, brushing my teeth in the morning, uh, getting ready for my very busy day of not doing a whole lot, um, and, um, um, I, uh, spit out, you know, after I wash my mouth, I spit out in the sink, and there's blood in it, um, not good. So, I, um, get, um, concerned right away, as I am concerned about every little thing that happens to me these days, and I, uh cough a little bit into a tissue, more blood. And it just kept happening and happening. It wasn't great gouts of blood, um, but it was enough because it wouldn't stop and kept going on. And it was bright red to be frightening, nevertheless. I mean, really scary. And I guess part of this is uh, I'm so scared about such things and everything is amplified. Speaking of things being amplified, Uh, that uh, to the extent I was even able to think at all for the fear I felt at that moment, um, I was thinking that it was another aortic aneurysm, which I had three and a half years ago. Aortic aneurysm, um, a sudden split in your aorta, uh, which would mean, really, if that was happening, uh, that I could be just minutes away from actually dying, from bleeding to death. And that's the first thing I thought, because it had happened to me once before. It's a kind of PTSD And I had one of these, as I've mentioned before, uh, about three and a half years ago. And um, I was literally then minutes away from dying. And um, what has happened ever since then is I've never really quite been healthy uh, in my mind or even my body since then. And, um, uh, you know, I had an ambulance come. This was the last time this happened to me, an ambulance. It was eight hours on a heart-lung machine, a coma. I was hovering over the chasm of the of blackness for three days after that, it was painful and hallucinations and uh, returns to the hospital and For years now i 've never really quite been um, myself and probably in many ways never will be again uh, the way I was before uh, and I like i say i 've never really gotten over the effects of all this it's uh, and it 's PTSD on top of PTSD I mean I grew up a in a way, and I've had experiences in my life where there was sudden death and confrontations of a sudden nature that were um, that were um, incredibly traumatic. And grew up uh, in a house where that kind of thing happened all the time. So something like that happens, it reaffirms my uh, feeling that I'm always on the edge of uh, checking out. So I'm scared to death. My wife uh, is, I'm uh, showing my wife, and she says, <clears throat> um, what should we do? What should we do? She, I said, well, it seems to me that I've got to go to the emergency room. got to find out what this, uh, <clears throat> what this blood is, where it's coming from, what it is. And she has the same thought, though she doesn't say it. You know, it could be the same thing again that happened last time. So she called in sick to work, and off we went to the emergency room. Now, <clears throat> since it seemed very scary, but since it wasn't so profound and it wasn't such great amounts, um, and I didn't think it was actually life-threatening, well, not at the moment anyhow. Who knows what was really causing it? That's what was scaring me. What was the bottom of it? But it didn't seem life-threatening at the very moment. I decided, we live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, um, and I decided to go all the way across town to the east side to New York Hospital Emergency Room, and not to the nearest hospital, which is St. Luke's, where they took me in an ambulance the last time I had this happen to me. And um, I was there, you know, I was there before and went through all this stuff I was, have been talking about from time to time. And St. Luke's is only six blocks away from where I live. It's only six blocks away. I could have um, gotten a cab, gone straight over there, or even perhaps walked, you know, could have gone right over to the emergency room. And I've been to both of these places before, Uh, for various reasons. My own uh, friends, my kids have been to these things. You know, I've lived in Manhattan for, I guess, what is it, 40, over 40 years now. So um, things have happened. And the reason I wanted to go to New York Hospital was it's supposed to be the best hospital in New York City. Absolutely supposed to be the best hospital in New York City. And St. Luke's does not have... Maybe I'm being unfair to St. Luke's. After all, they saved my life there. Uh, But they do not... Uh, supposedly have the best emergency room or the most competent staff compared to New York Hospital. Let's say compared to New York Hospital. But that's that's a reputation. Who knows if it's really true? But New York is famous, New York Hospital is famous for being the best hospital in the city. And also I figured St. Luke's, uh, which I, every time I went there was tremendously crowded. And the few times I went to New York Hospital, it wasn't that crowded. I figure I'm not going to go to St. Luke's. I'll go to a hospital where they have... Uh, more room, and they're more able to treat you easily. So we called a car service, and over we went. And um, meanwhile, uh, the bleeding is not stopping. I did check to see, is it my bleeding is good? my gums beating? Is there a cut on my uh, lip? No, no, it's just coming from somewhere, um, and I don't know where. So I get to New York Hospital, and the first thing you do, and go into the emergency room, first thing you do is you go through triage, triage, right, Well, they determine exactly how sick you are, what's wrong with you, and where they're going to send you. The, the emergency room is divided into two or three separate places, uh, each one um, more emergent, more urgent than the other, right? So they sent me, uh, they sent me to a huge emergency room area uh, with little uh, curtain cubbies uh, in there where people were, um, <clears throat> were sitting and uh, lying in beds. But um, to my um, surprise and chagrin, because uh, I uh, imagined it would be different, and it had been different the couple of times I'd been in New York Hospital before, <coughs> um, um, there were uh, beds everywhere. There were beds everywhere. There were rolling beds in the aisles. There were, there were beds on top of beds. There were beds every place you could possibly look. And um, the place was incredibly crowded. It looked like, to me... Uh, It looked like there had been a war and they were taking in um, people who had been wounded or that there had been uh, sort of like a plane crash right outside. Uh, And everybody was – everybody in in this place – I don't know whether they sent me to the worst place, but I don't think they did. But in this little area or big area where I was sent, uh, people were – they were everywhere. People everywhere bleeding. People were bleeding. They had bandages on. They were bleeding – uh, they were not profusely. So maybe this was not the the, the the urgent, urgent emergency room. But people were groaning and moaning and crying, crying. And it was incredibly crowded, incredibly crowded. Um, and everybody was there. Everybody in the world was there. Uh, all of New York. <laughs> all of New York. Black, white, Asian, Latino, old, young. Everybody was there. Um, and um, <clears throat> during the course of the day, When I was there, and I was there for several hours um, to, you know, and before, you know, something at the end of it happened uh, to terminate my stay in the hospital, there were, uh, I observed everything that was going on around me. There wasn't much else you could do. They put me into a rolling bed and uh, they hooked up an IV, which is, uh, you know, I've spent far too much time in hospitals in my life and especially in the last several years. For uh, emotional reasons, you know, mental hospitals, uh, uh, all kinds of emergencies, uh, visits to the emergency room, hospitalizations for procedures. I mean, I'm sick to, uh, pardon the expression, sick to death of hospitals. And I would love never to see the inside of one again. But who knows, right? Uh, Because when you go into a hospital, I mean, you could be afraid, especially in a big city hospital or almost any hospital, you might catch something even worse. People advise you, and I'm sure Gary Null has advised a lot of people, try to stay out of a hospital if you can. Try to even stay away from doctors and procedures if you can. Because often uh, you'll wind up worse than you were to begin with. And people have gotten sick in hospitals. They've gotten infections in hospitals that they didn't have before they went in. Anyhow, they put an IV in my arm. And uh, it just reminded me of the other times I've had IVs for all the tests that in the last couple of years that I've had uh, all the... um, all the um, intravenous um, antibiotics and scans and fluids, uh, you know, too much already, too much. But they put the IV in. As soon as they put the IV in your arm in a hospital, you're officially a patient. You might be lying in that bed. You might be sitting in a chair. But when they stick an IV in your arm, you are, cr- it's funny, you've crossed a kind of another line. You know, they puncture you. They enter your body, and uh, they put this... Uh, this fluid in a bag, plastic bag, and uh, there were several people in uh, the place where I was, in this hallway, in this area, where the people were in their curtain, little tiny cubbies, and out in the hallway, like I was, in their rolling beds, that had IVs in their arms, or hooked up to various different monitors. As soon as they hook you up to a monitor, or uh, mm-hmm. they put wires, uh, you know, uh, into things, that, that, and then they, put, then they stick stuff on your chest, or whatever, or they hook you up to an IV... You've already taken a kind of funny step, uh, uh, being a kind of uh, dependent patient rather than in control of your, your own destiny there, to the extent that you are. I mean, you're in there because something is happening that uh, you can't control, and it's sort of, um, it's scary. So you're in there to begin with. But once they do that, you're officially a member of the patient world. And they took my blood pressure, which is way too high, much higher than it usually is, and... Um, That's scary in itself, uh, because um, when they sewed up this last aneurysm... Is this too much for anybody? I mean, of course, you're free to... uh, You may have already stopped listening. (laughs) But you're free to tune away, if you want, and rejoin um, PRN at um, 11 o'clock when we have... I don't know what's the next show. What's the next show after 11 o'clock? What do we have? Expat. Okay, Expat is the name of the show. So, anyhow... Uh, fair warning you know, if, you, if you need it. And then it took, So the blood pressure is way high. And when they fixed the aneurysm last time around, um, they told me that I have to keep my blood pressure down. And I take pills you know, to keep my blood pressure down because uh, the aneurysm is sewed up, but they don't want too much blood pumping past it or through it, whatever, at too high or too turbulent a rate because it uh, could burst it open again. So the blood pressure's high. That's scary. They stick the IV in. Now I'm a member of the of the patient world. And um, the people all around me, people everywhere, um, and it seemed like there were new people being grown all the time, and uh, they were just cramming everybody in as much as they could. And hardly anybody uh, was leaving. The people who uh, had been there when I was there, and I got there around 8.30 in the morning, about 8.15 in the morning, um, and they were still there when I uh, left many hours later. Still there, way, way, way into the late afternoon. Um, and I'm lying in my rolling bed there. And uh, sometimes, you know, people, the doctors, uh, specialists would come in. And they would um, they would examine somebody or talk to somebody. Nurses would do various things. And there was only one covering doctor. And occasionally, orderlies would come. Uh, transportation, they're called. Transportation would come. And they would... Um, take people for tests, and then bring them back later on. So people were moving back and forth, and there's a, a lot of activity, a lot of chaos. And as I say, a lot, of, a lot of groaning, a lot of, you know, the combination of all the terror and the fear and the worry and the doubt and the pain that was going on there creates a kind of special atmosphere that you're living in as soon as you're in a place like that. And it gets to you, and you contribute your own, and there it is. You're sitting in that. And as I say, there's only one covering doctor, and it's all, almost an impossible task for her to uh, to receive all these tests to check people out. <clears throat> and um, they um, they had, a, in fact, they had a really good staff. Uh, my experience with New York Hospital, and then this is my only like personal experience in a couple of a couple of ways temporarily in my life. There's no way that I would legitimately or accurately uh, compare the two places, you know, St. Luke's or New York Hospital. And what difference does it make? Anyhow, you know, some of you aren't even living in New York, and some of you, um, <clears throat> God bless you, if you don't need it, don't even have to go to uh, any one of these hospitals. But um, New York Hospital did seem to have, uh, the people there seemed to be more competent, more, um, I don't know, they looked like they were doing more. They, they looked like they knew what they were doing more, better. And the people, everybody involved, there were volunteers everywhere trying to help people out, soothe people down a little bit, bring people food, bring people drink if they had anything. F- and I had anything to eat or drink, but I wasn't allowed to because they were going to take some tests. So there was no eating or drinking for me. And um, the, uh, the transportation, people came for transportation to roll you, you know, uh, onto an elevator or to another floor where you would get whatever test they wanted to give you. And uh, they were really, really sweet decent people. They were all concerned. The nurses were. Everybody, almost everybody, I should say, was very nice. And I've had not the same experiences in other hospitals where people can treat you literally like shit. Because maybe they're overworked, or maybe they just don't have a good attitude to begin with, or maybe they're not getting paid enough. But in this place, the people were terrific, but they were way overworked. There was far too many people in this hospital. Far too many people. uh, Way overworked. And uh, it was uh, hard to see, because people there... We're constantly, including myself, constantly. When is the doctor? Uh, when am I going to find out this? Uh, I had a test. What about that? Uh, can I see the doctor? And uh, people are walking back and forth, and people, uh, people are, uh, you know, people are asking uh, nurses and orderlies, well, what's happening? What's happening to me? What can I do?" And they say, "Oh, I'll have patience. The doctor will get to you soon." And uh, there I am sitting, there, lying in my rolling bed, which is uh, uncomfortable, but there I am. <clears throat> wondering uh, if I actually, uh, what on earth is happening to me? Because the blood still wasn't stopping. It was starting to slow down a little bit, which was encouraging, but it still wasn't stopping. And I'm, and I'm trying to figure out what on earth, what on earth is going to happen? What is, what's going on? And all around me, I uh, overhear, of course, and I'm nothing to do, but my wife is sitting in a chair next to me, patient, helping me, as she's been helping me through these last many, many years, um... And she's sitting there in a chair, and we're talking here and t- commenting on what's going on around. And I overhear. Naturally, it's impossible not to overhear and see the nurses and the doctors and everybody with their, with all of the other people around. And people there were having heart attacks. I mean, they were they weren't actually falling down on the floor or writhing in pain. I guess that was for another part of the emergency room. But they were having heart attacks. Uh, there were people there who had cancer who were uh, telling the doctors about it, and uh, one. Uh, there was um, an old lady who was right across from me um, who had dementia, and she was there with her aide. Her son-in-law arrived. Eventually, they determined that uh, she was having heart problems, and uh, when they found the bed, eventually, they um, they sent her upstairs uh, to a room. But she was drifting in and out, and uh, she didn't always know where she was, and it was kind of sad. And Her son-in-law showed up, and you see all these Incredible dramas, right? They make all these plays and dramas and TV shows about what goes on in a hospital. Because it's about life and death. It's about suffering. It's about all of these things and love, you know, and people's attachments to life, to other people. And uh, But uh, I was sad to see her with a dementia. She didn't quite know where she was, and she was nervous and scared. And there was another man and his wife. uh, uh, He looked like he was sort of Greek or Eastern European. And they were very sturdy people, obviously people who would... uh, They had accents, so they had probably uh, immigrated to the country. And uh, he was telling somebody, I can overhear it, I can help her, but overhear what's going on, that he had cancer and and now he was having a heart attack. They were telling him. They took him for tests and they told him, you're having a heart attack, but he refused to believe it. He was there the whole day refusing to believe he was having a heart attack. And they wanted to treat him, but he didn't want to be treated for it because he didn't want to know about that, Right. Who wants to know about these things? He's already suffering, right? What did he do wrong? There's another man who was in his late 50s uh, or maybe about 60, and he was bald, a bald guy, sort of short, stocky guy, and he had sagging jeans with holes in him. He was uh, an intelligent-looking guy, but he looked like he was uh, either an artist who didn't care how he looked or maybe he just was down on his luck because his clothes were just sort of hanging off him and torn and stained and... He had one long bandage on his arm, uh, which kept unraveling, and he kept walking back and forth to the bathroom all the time, carrying his IV in one hand, and his bandage kept unraveling and dragging on the floor. I mean, you know, it was just really something. And it was only one bathroom in this place, only one bathroom that everybody used, including me with my unhooked IV. And uh, it was um, just, uh, first of all, it's an institutional hospital bathroom, and then you also know you're in an institution, right? I mean, just... Metal and sterile and um, that 's the way these places are, and it was filled with trash and junk i mean there were there were uh, used uh, towels on the floor, and everything was piled up all over the place, and some stains and various things and they constantly kept cleaning it up they constantly kept cleaning it up and um, but it didn 't make that much difference every time they cleaned it up the people the, there were so many people there using this place that it was uh, that it was still uh Messed up and chaotic all the time when you went in there. Um, and there was another woman. There was a, another woman there uh, who um, who uh, looked like she was, uh, I don't know, about eight months pregnant. Um, and she kept talking to the doctor. And the doctor kept talking to her. And they would talk to her very earnestly about something, trying to explain something. And, and she kept saying, no, 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 no. I am pregnant. I am pregnant. And it seemed as if, although it's hard to believe, but she had this big bulging stomach, just like she was uh, very pregnant. Uh, they were trying to convince her, I think, that she was not pregnant. And who knows what else was going on? What was wrong with her? I have no idea. And she said, yes, I know. You're calling me crazy. You think I'm a crazy pregnant lady with no baby. But I, I, I do have a baby. I know I have a baby. And it reminded me a long time ago when I worked in the welfare department as a welfare worker, I actually, there was a woman on my caseload um, who was uh, very thin, this is on the Lower East Side, she was very, very thin, but she also looked like she was about seven or eight months pregnant. And, uh, but she wasn't pregnant. She did not have, she did not have a baby. And I talked uh, to the hospital and they uh, were able to speak to me about some stuff that wasn't completely confidential and I said, and there were other reports uh, in, the, um, in the, the case file where people had contacted her doctors in the hospital and this is, uh, this is something that she had done, like had happened to her. She was young, maybe 26, 25, 26. And she, she was constantly uh, saying that she was pregnant. And they would uh, put her through all these tests because she looked like she was pregnant. And she acted like she was pregnant. But she was never pregnant. And they never found anything wrong with it. There wasn't something like, uh, you know, there wasn't a tumor inside her. There wasn't, uh, she just wanted to be pregnant, I guess, so bad or so badly. Uh, She wasn't married, I remember, and she wanted to be pregnant so badly that uh, she developed somehow what what the mind can do with your body. She developed uh, a stomach that looked like she was pregnant, and it reminded me of that. But this lady, yeah, she was insisting she was pregnant, and they were arguing with her. I don't know. And um, there was another man there who was uh, diabetic, and he was there, like I say, from the minute I got there to the minute I left, and he was there all day long because they didn't have enough staff. And uh, he wanted insulin, but for some reason, they wouldn't give it to him, and he kept complaining. He said he was gonna go to another hospital. He's never been to a worse hospital. And then finally, after one approval and a test and another approval, they brought him insulin. He said it was the wrong kind of insulin. And they they wanted to keep him, but he didn't want to stay there, and there was a big argument, lots of arguments going on. Because people uh, need to be taken care of. They're scared to death. They want to know what's happening to them. And I'm lying there, looking at all these people who are going through this anguish and pain, and I'm, um, you know, constantly thinking of uh, of uh, of death, and I'm thinking of life, and I'm thinking of the connections, because people um, all the time were, um, were uh, you know, talking about uh, what's going to happen to me, am I going to die, and the doctors were assuring them they weren't. And um, all the while, all the while that all this stuff was going on, there was all these announcements over the loudspeaker, like MASH. Did you ever see MASH on TV? Um, MASH with where there's this chaotic, insane war environment, and these these, uh, objective, uh, sort of um, indifferent, almost low-key announcements came over the loudspeaker that uh, made everything seem even more crazy. Um, And, you know, the usual hospital announcements like stat, EKG, psych, stat. Stat, uh, we all know from watching TV shows, means emergency, right? And then uh, there was another announcement, environmental services with a mop. Environmental services used to be called housekeeping. Everybody's got, uh, everybody has to have a professional title now and a professional name. Anyhow, all these announcements are coming, coming over there and we're sitting there and uh, my wife and I, and she's worried about everybody else. She's actually going over, she's a social worker, and she's actually going over to the nurses and to the orderlies and saying, this woman is in pain, that man is, uh, he needs something to drink, he needs some water, you know, she, she's a born social worker. She, uh, she is uh, born into this world to help other people. And she feels tremendous empathy for other people. I wish I felt more, but uh, she's got enough for 25 people. Anyhow, finally I get the first test. It's a chest X-ray, and the blood is uh, now slowed down, coming out of my mouth. And it's almost slowed down to the point where there's hardly any, and they send me for a chest X-ray. And um, <clears throat> again, once you get this test, um, you find out that, um, you know, that you are once again, you are reminded once again how deeply into patient world you are, right? You know, take your shirt off, uh, you know, stand here, move your arms around, they push it, push you it a little bit where you have to be, and uh, they take the x-ray and use that stuff pouring into your body anyhow. And um, then back down in my rolling bed to, uh, to the place where I was, and... Um, Now I'm becoming even more and more passive, right? (laughs) More and more passive, more like a patient. I'm lying in bed just waiting for whatever they're going to tell me. What is my fate? What is my destiny here? There's nothing really I can do about it. And um, over the last uh, three or four years, I've always been a hypochondriac. Always been a hypochondriac. Always thought I was going to die from something. And um, the first time I almost did die from something was this thing that happened three and a half years ago. But I've always spent my life running to doctors, and I do, I still am doing that all the time as if, and this is part of the, uh, attachment to, uh, to the idea, like magical thinking that if I go to a doctor and I sit in the doctor's office and the doctor checks me out, I'm always waiting to find, I always want to find out, is this it for me? Is this the end? It's been going on since I was in my twenties, always anticipating the end. So I'm always running to doctors, the slightest little thing. And, um, uh, and then I'm, I'm desperately hoping all the time that they're telling me that there's nothing wrong with me and most of my life they did tell me there was nothing wrong with me until something was very wrong and um, uh, so I was always sort of caught in the middle with um, with this and I've been a like, professional patient all my life and what was I looking for with all these doctors? Reassurance that I wouldn't die that I wouldn't grow old that I would never suffer pain maybe reassurance from them, right? Just writing their name down in a telephone number on, uh, on a list of doctors makes me feel better, right? This is uh, this kind of attachment, I think, that the Buddha was talking about. Uh, and uh, a magical fantasy feeling that if you, uh, that if you go to these people, and, uh, and for me it was also psychological. A lot of these people were just basically fathers and mothers to me. You know, I sit in their office and they're authoritative and sometimes they're kindly and they tell you you're okay and they pat you on the shoulder or whatever. You know, you're fine. And they, you know, they, they feel or they test or they probe different parts of your body. And um, it's it's a kind of uh, intimacy or caring that maybe I didn't have enough of when I was young. Anyhow, uh, all these memories. And I'm sitting there and my wife's sitting next to me and she's been through this a lot for many years now and I feel really sorry for her that... My illnesses are putting through all the, putting her through all this trouble and apprehension, and she's sitting there, and she's being patient and reassuring. Uh, <clears throat> then we wait there you know, and there for hours now, then find still not, nothing to eat or drink. And um, then they do a, they come and tell me, I need a scan of my upper chest and throat, a scan, checking. They want to check for bleeding caused by possibly a mass, a mass oh man, an upper respiratory infection, or God forbid. Another aneurysm. So now it's 3 p.m., no food and drink. I'm waiting. I had to scan, and I'm waiting for results of the test. And they say the doctor will let me know. And I'm lying there and lying there and lying there and worried about this. Finally, a nurse comes over and says, uh, are you Mr. Fader? And I say, yeah. And she says, we have to hook you up to a heart monitor. What? Put me up to a heart monitor. and Now I'm really scared. I say, where's the doctor? She's busy. She can't see you now. I say, what's wrong to the nurse? <clears throat> and she says, the doctor will tell you. Oh, boy. You know, I'm thinking, this is it. I'm, I'm, I've had it. You know, I'm, I'm minutes away from, I mean, I've got another, you know, I'm just freaking out. Um, and all the while, while all of this stuff is happening, which is making me even crazier, there's people on their fucking cell phones. Everybody is on their cell phones. They are playing music or talking to people or watching some kind of video and without headphones. It's a giant... <laughs> it's the modern world. It's chaos on top of chaos. It's chaos that makes chaos. Oh, but I'm too fucking judgmental. I have always been too judgmental. I don't know if I could, And I've tried not to be, but I don't know if I could ever stop being judgmental. People use the, telephones to talk, the cell phones, they were using them to talk to their friends and their relatives. Reassuring them, or, or they were getting calls from their relatives, are you okay? So, this is an important thing. This is a great thing, right? Uh, never mind the fact that the, uh, the uh, ubiquitous television is in the background, you know, some crazy uh, talk show or interview show, and people are applauding and they're selling stuff. Why, don't they, why do they have TVs everywhere? Banks, doctors' offices. All TVs should just be shut off, except in people's private homes. They don't need them anywhere else but they are everywhere else. So all this chaos and talking on cell phones and, and videos and everything. Finally, I'm hooked up to the heart monitor. It's uh, pretty late in the afternoon now, and um, a physician's assistant comes over and says, um, do you have, uh, I wanted to ask you a question, and she's very blunt, and she's uh, kind of, uh, you know, she's uh, she's pretty straightforward. She's just, uh, she's not into, she's too busy to have sympathy for everybody, Right and the heart monitor's beeping and everything, and I got these wires on my chest. And she says, um, <clears throat> I want to ask you about your aneur- aneurysm. I said, what about it? And she says, was it ascending or descending? I don't know. I have no idea if it was ascending or descending. I said, why are you asking me this? And she said, well, the scan shows that uh, you might have another aneurysm. Pew! And that's it. My wife breaks into tears because she was standing right next to me uh, in the emergency room uh, three and a half years ago when the doctor told me that you have an aneurysm and you're gonna die if we don't operate in minutes. And she breaks into tears, breaks into tears, and I'm, I slip into um, uh, my, um, my other world that I've uh, lived in on and off for most of my life. I don't want to hear it, and I want to know about it, and I'm also shaking and terrified with fear. And why is it, Why do I have these two feelings? Because I've always been, and I have to be frank about it, I have to be honest about it, I've always been since I was a kid, for various reasons I won't go into, but very extreme reasons, I've always been ambivalent about life. I've always been afraid to put my all into life, almost into everything, except sometimes these radio shows or performances or writing I've done. Uh, when it comes to love and to just participating in life and love and loving people and being close to people is the is the closest, hardest thing, the most participatory, the most connected evidence of life that you could possibly have. Kids, uh, um, um, lo- your wives, husbands, uh, mothers, fathers, everybody, friends. I've always tried to avoid being too close to people because that's the most dedication you could possibly have to life. And that's where I'd be the most afraid that I would lose it or somebody else would be gone and I'd, I wouldn't have anything. So I've always developed a kind of Fear, ambivalence, a kind of magical thinking that sort of takes me out of the current situation, dissociation, and um, but every, but I still I'm terrified, and my wife's crying, and finally, because she's so efficient at everything, she digs out of her um, her pocketbook the, uh, telephone numbers of the, um, the telephone numbers of the the telephone numbers of the of the doctor, my heart, my cardiologist, and the surgeon, the cardiologist and the surgeon. And they called. I said, "Please call them up." My wife says, "Please call them up." And I am lying there, thinking, "Okay, whatever comes, you know, I've had enough of this life already. I've never had. I've only had one foot in the other. I always had one foot in the other world." And uh, but this is a way of not. Uh, this is my way of keeping death at bay. of uh, Of uh, it's my own odd, bizarre, ironic way of being attached to the idea that I'll live forever. And um, so I am playing my my fantasy, uh, magical thinking games. They go off, and they come back after 10 minutes, and we're sitting there looking at each other. She's looking at me. I'm looking at her. She's crying. And they say, um, <clears throat> we got a hold of your surgeon finally. They faxed over the results of the last year's scan. Um, it looks the same as the one we took, so it doesn't look like you have a new one. We're not sure. You have to follow up with your surgeon. And they said, but uh, it doesn't look like you have a new one. So finally, they... Uh, Discharges, but right before the discharges, I said to her, "So, what was all this blood from this morning?" Which had also disappeared by now. She said, "Probably you were coughing too much." The doctor, he the doctor said, "Probably you were coughing too much." And I have this terrible cough for various reasons, and sometimes it gets amplified by uh, by uh, nervousness, and I just cough and cough. She said, "You burst, you burst some blood vessels in your throat." So try not to cough so much. All that's what that's what the. the the end of that little story was. So finally we're discharged and uh, you know, still nothing to eat or drink, right? And we walk outside and there's this huge crowd of people outside the emergency room and uh everybody's waiting for their cars. Everybody's on the cell phones. Uh they're calling uh Uber, Gruber, Boober, everything. And uh finally we call the car service. It's okay for it's okay for me to use a cell phone now because I because <laughs> I need it. So I now I'm not judging other people. And uh, we get a call back after many, many minutes of waiting, long time waiting. The car service guy says he can't come. He can't come to us because there's a fire in a hospital across the street, a fire in a hospital. Anyhow, he waits for us. He waits for us to come over there. He's like, a saint. <laughs> and we drive home through this chaotic, overwhelming, crazy, falling down, nutty city into the apartment. And um, I'm You know, I'm sitting there, and I sit down in my chair. My wife decides to go out, and we have to buy. She wants to buy a couple of things at the supermarket, pick up a prescription. And I'm sitting in this chair in the living room, quiet as I can be in my relatively quiet apartment. And I'm sitting um, in silence there. And I look at the pictures of my wife and my kids and my granddaughter, and I'm thinking about life and death and life again. And I'm thinking, God, what a long, strange trip this has all been.
2: My lords and my ladies of the royal court, the religious fantasy of Jonah and the whale. Now the great lord was sitting in his rosy rocking chair one hallelujah morning when he looked down and observed by a great body of water, a little mortal about five foot two, and the lord dug the mortal, and he called for Gabe, and Gabe put down his horn and swung with the book. And the Lord flipped the pages, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, and it was Jonah getting his kicks on the beach and said, man, show is crazy out here in this here beach. Man's got a lot of room to groove in the sunshine and down. everything's so a melody and fine. Now, when the great Lord has something he must have done upon the earth, he calls upon his favorite children to do it. So the great Lord put the sound on. Jonah said, I dig you, Jonah. I dig you, Jonah. I dig you, Jonah, because Jonah is the Lord's sweet boy. Jonah said, Man, where is all that jazz music coming from, anyway? Sound like 72 jazz bands jumping off here. Man makes them want to and wiggle. He said, whoo, whoo!" So I know them. V- Seagulls ain't wailing up no bees like that I said the whopper wheels and the canary Going cows. I, I got the craziest feeling all over my body Ooh, Feel like I'm going to stretch my wings And Ooh, Good morning, Lord The Lord said good morning, Jonah Said, Jonah I got a little favor Don't say, ain't that crazy 96 million cats for the Lord to put his thing on And the sea like Jonah Ain't that groovy And the great Lord said, Jonah I want you to cross the Red Sea And put the message on the Israelites They're squaring up over there And Jonah said, man, you don't mean to see a big pool, do you, Lord? Mm-hmm. boom He said, man, look at them waves mm-hmm. boom He said, you must mean some Little old Jonah size pool, don't you, Lord? Great Lord, said Jonah, put your nose into the wind, and the message will come to you. And Jonah put his great nose into the north wind. It was not there. He put it in the east wind. It was not there. He put it in the west wind. It was not there. But when he put it in the hallelujah south wind, it was there. So he traveled for 22 days and 15 minutes and came to a great cathedral-like group of trees lifting their glorious arms up to heaven in supplication of the master and down at the bottom of these giant sequoias Jonah saw growing a strange green vine and he said just like Brigham Young this is it. And he sat down beside it, and he observed of it, and he admired of it, and he plucked from it, and he rolled of it, and he selected of it, and he swung of it, and he said, Why is that fool fool the Lord want me to dig? Look out, here come Jonah! And he is the day is long! Boom. Boom! Cutting a gigantic bee right through the breast of the waves, and suddenly fatigue hit Jonah in the back of his soul, and he lay his great body back in the water, and he lulling in the waves and Morpheus was goofing on his eyebrows and sleep came to Jonah and he slept for 12 hours and 15 seconds when he woke what did he see? I'll tell you what he saw. He saw the whale. And what did he say when he saw the whale? He said, get me from the sea immediately. And the whale said, oh, man. <laughs> every time I stick my nose out this pool, I sure see some crazy jasmine. <laughs> this is the bending end. He so, said, what you mean the bending end, Mr. Whale? He so, said, look at that. He talked, to. What do you know about that? He said, of course I talk, Mr. Whale. He said, don't you dig the marine news? Ain't you hip to what's going down around these hill waters? He so, said, wait a minute here. Take it easy now. He said, ain't no take it easy, Mr. Whale. He say, it's a big pool. You groove your way. I'll groove mine. I'll swoop the scene and dig you later. Well, he say, look at here. Here's a little bit of nothing to me and Miles from no place. He's going to hit me, the king of the dip, what the lick is. He says, I've got the good mind to gobble you up. So said, don't you do that, Mr. Whale, because if you do, I'm going to knock you in your most delicate gear. The whale say, That boo it! And he swallowed Jonah. And here was Jonah, slipping and sliding from one side of this great sea mammal to the other, fear and terror in his heart. He couldn't go out the front end, and he's afraid to go out the back end. And all of a sudden he fell down on these great thick blubbery rugs, and a piteous sound came from Jonah. He said, Lord!
1: Lord! Can you dig me in this here fish?
2: And the Lord said, I got you covered, Jonah. Don't so <laughs> the Lord sure got a crazy sense of humor, Say, Maybe that's the reason I dig the cat so much. Tell me he's got me covered. The cat got me Surrounded. And the great Lord said Jonah, reach in your watertight pocket and take from there some of the cigarettes you got in the great tree. And courage will return to you. And Jonah did. And we see Jonah inside this giant whale, smoking his strained cigarette, watching the pistons. Pound, driving and poom, pushing And the great valves. <gasps> Ooh, expanding and. ah, oh, expanding. And finally the whale say, uh, Jonah. And Jonah say, what is it, Fish? Well, you'll say, what is it, Fish? Say, so you got a new captain on, you your mass mess now, Mr. Fish. He say, I'm outside no more. I'm inside now. Well, say, Jonah, what in the world is you smoking in there? I thought I was off to Fibbity of Islands. Here I is, two minutes for the Panama Canal. This jazz got to go. Jonah, say, what do you get? I'm smoking in here. I'm the captain this mass mess I've done explained to you before. Say, Jonah, what are you doing stomping all over the engine room like that for, boy? Why don't you sit on someplace and cool yourself? You're getting the ride for nothing. Jonah said, I'll stomp all over this here engine room as long as the I on. Say, what is this wheel? He said, look out there, boy, you're messing with Madonna me the wheel there. Jonah, look out, man, don't me. mess with that equipment like that, yeah? Jonah said, what is this here lever here? He said, look, out, met you, Jonah. Jonah, Jonah, boy, boy, look out what you're doing. You got my full speed ahead head lever. Jonah, Jonah, look out for the rock on the right. The rock on the right, Jonah. Cool, he said, it ain't cool at all. We in this shallow water. Jonah said, that's all I want to know. And fa-bam, he hit the whale's big sneeze of me then. Blew him out on the cool, groovy sands of serenity. Which only goes to prove, as Confucius said many, many years ago, which translated briefly means, if you get to it and you cannot do it, there you jolly well are, aren't you? Your way, I'll groove mine, I'll swoop the scene and dig you later. Well, he said, Look at here, here's a little old bit of nothing to me and Miles from no place. he gonna hit me the king of the dip or the lick is. He says, I've got the good mind to gobble you up. You got to move.
1: We got to move.
0: Thanks for listening. Uh, Here I am and here you are. And I hope to see you next week.